like I always knew there was something wrong with me. I thought it was like a rare mental health health condition that nobody else had. I knew I shouldn't use cocaine. And I knew that marijuana made me super paranoid. But I just thought, you know, I just had to figure out how to manage alcohol. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Addiction Unlimited podcast, where you get to learn everything you want to know about addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Angela Pugh, co-founder of Kansas City Recovery, life coach, and recovering alcoholic. To learn more about me, you can listen to episode zero on your podcast app or find us on the web at addictionunlimited.com. Hi, Veronica. I am so happy to have you on. I really appreciate you taking the time to be here with me. Hi, Angela. It's great to be here. I've heard really good things about your podcast, so thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you. Tell everybody a little bit about you and what you do. So I am 23 years sober. My sobriety date is May 2nd, 2000. Um, I was back in the day in the UK. I was a a psychotherapist. I had my own practice. I started and ran a rehab. Um, then I met an American and married an American and moved to America. And um, since then, I've been writing books and um, my podcast. Um, and I realized I also didn't want to be a psychotherapist anymore. I didn't want to have to deal with insurance or do anything like that. So um, yeah, I've kind of really, since not only did I get sober? It really did provide me my career as well, which is not uncommon. Lots of people who get sober then go into this in some way, shape or form. But I've always worked in in providing services to people who want to stop drinking. I was going to ask you that. Which came first? I mean, were you on the track to be to become a psychotherapist first or did you get sober and then decide you wanted to help people? Well, it's, it is how I got sober, actually. I was, um, I got sober in Florida and I, at the time I was in my twenties, I was 27 when I stopped drinking. I, part of my stories, I had really bad anxiety and panic attacks, like really bad. And I couldn't deal with groups of people. Like I couldn't work in an open plan office or in groups. And so I had this crazy idea that I could do one-to-one and I, I had kind of always had an idea that I wanted to help people. And the local college, the only course that it offered was addictions counseling. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll do that then. So I started doing the classes and that, you know, I was sitting there for a few months kind of going, hmm. And then, God, how I got sober is so weird. I was, I feel like I slept walked into it. I knew there was something wrong. Like I always knew there was something wrong with me. I thought it was like a rare mental health health condition that nobody else had. It never, ever occurred to me to not drink alcohol. I knew I shouldn't use cocaine. And I knew that marijuana made me super paranoid. But I just thought, you know, I just had to figure out how to manage alcohol. Like not drinking, that never even crossed my mind. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so I was doing these classes and then I, I met someone who didn't, who was sober and and I met them and they just sort of seemed all right. Like they seemed like they were enjoying life. Whereas my perception up to then was if you didn't drink alcohol, well, that was the most devastating thing in the world. Like, I mean, how boring and awful that would be. How would you ever have fun again? Yeah, that old chestnut. <laughs> we're, I want to tell you, we're so unoriginal, right? We're so yes. unoriginal, <laughs> yes. right? Everyone thinks that. Everyone who wonders about the drinking thinks, how am I ever going to have, we're so unoriginal. 
And I just had this conversation with a client the other day who was explaining to me his thought process. And I was like, oh, so you're different from the rest of us. <laughs> like, so, so you're unique. That's what you're telling me. You're not like the millions of the rest yeah. of us, but you have yeah. a very unique situation. I'm like, dude, we all think that. <laughs> it is not original. Yeah. I, yeah. That That's kind of, it's a shock actually. Mm-hmm. And then I found it really comforting to be like, oh, <laughs> You know, like I used to think I was the only person who drank before like going out. Like I needed to have a couple of glasses of wine before going to the pub or the party or the social event. And I thought I was the only person who did that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, we're so unoriginal. Um, and then I, I kind of one day I, d- I stopped drinking. I just thought I'd do a week and that turned into a month. And at the end of the month, I kind of had this, I was rollerblading and I realized I just thought, God, I feel amazing. Like, I feel amazing. Mm-hmm. And I realized it's because I hadn't been hung over. Right. And, and then eventually, I think I was about six weeks sober when I went to a 12-step meeting. And I, I was very on the fence. I didn't know if I was going to – I just didn't know, really. I still was unconvinced that alcohol was the root of the problem. And then, thankfully, I stayed around. And then I heard someone in a 12-step meeting talk about fear and the way that fear – had dominated their lives and that the reason they drank was because of fear and fear was the engine of their their drinking and I just was like oh my god that's me that's me I I that's why anxiety and panic attacks is just fear and uh I, I drank because I I had no other way of dealing with my fear I was consumed by fear and that was my kind of like everything uh moment of clarity everything kind of made sense to me in that moment and I saw that I didn't need to have so I wasn't even a daily drinker. I, did, I didn't need to have multiple DUIs or get fired from jobs. None of that stuff had happened to me. It was how I felt on the inside. That how I felt on the inside, I was using alcohol to deal with how I felt on my inside. And, 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 that's, and from there, I, I was all in. Because I, I, I had been looking for a solution for... I went into drug-induced psychosis when I was 18. And I'd been looking for a solution to how I felt for almost 10 years and again I thought with some rare mental health condition mm-hmm. and if I could just find the right person to fix me then I'd be all right and then this just all made sense and then I, I was so I I grasped it with two hands because I was like oh you're telling me that I need to stop drinking and do the 12 steps where do I sign up like if you're telling me that will make me happy I'll, I'll do anything I will do anything to not feel the way that I'm feeling anything if, if that's what you're telling me I'll do it and uh I never look back See, that's how you know that you're really ready to get mm. sober and change your life because you are willing to do anything. And mm. I loved that in my early recovery, sitting in 12-step meetings, and they would talk about that willingness because that was a concept that I had never paid attention to, never gave it much thought. You know, like you hear all these buzzwords, but you never really understand what they mean. So when they started talking about that willingness and that you will do anything, I'm like, that's how you know. When you're really ready to change your life and be different, you are willing to do anything. You don't have any fight left. I was not sitting in there going, well, I'm not going to do that. I don't need that. That doesn't apply to me. I had nothing left. I was open to whatever. I was like, these people have done it. They've done it successfully. I'll do whatever they say. Yeah. Pain is a great motivator, motivator, 
and I was in a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because I get people who come to me whose lives are, lives are clearly not great. And they're like, mm. we do get kind of almost used to the pain, right? We just get, mm. we normalize the dysfunction and the chaos and the, it's really, uh, the way that we're able to delude ourselves is always something that's quite fascinating to me. Like I've, you know, I've had people still rationalize that they can drink when their lives are train wrecks because of alcohol. Mm. But yeah, pa pain was a great, it was a great motivator. Um, and I also want to say, I think the other thing is, I was talking to a friend about this the other day. I did use drugs and cocaine and without, it was cocaine that really finished me off. Mm. Like it, it just, the, the come downs from that, I was suicidal. So I'm really great. Um, I'm really grateful for, for that. Sorry. Uh, I'm really grateful for that. Um, because I think I could have drunk for at least another 15 more years. Mm -hmm. And then you could have been really miserable. Mm. Oh my God. <laughs> because yeah. it doesn't get better. And that was one of the things I thought too, when I got sober, I thought I was the worst, mm. right? Like my self image was so bad and my self loathing was so high that I just thought I was the absolute worst person, worst alcoholic. And you know, because I drank every day and I drank an exorbitant amount every day. So to me, the evidence showed that I really was the worst, right? And when I got to the rooms of AA and started hearing other people's stories, I was like, oh, well, in this context, like, I'm just normal. Yeah. This is, I'm not broken beyond yeah. repair, right? Like I'm not the worst one. I'm not the worst alcoholic that's ever lived. And there is a lot of comfort in that. Uh, yes, th there's great comfort in knowing that you're not the only one. And this is very common garden. And also there is a solution. And there's, you know, I'm, I got sober in AA because that's all there was 23 years ago. Yeah, me too. And there's, um, you know, there's other programs and methods I think the most important thing is you have to pick one and stick to it what people mm. do is dip in and dip out and and they think I'll just do it for a few months and then I'm fixed and off I go it, it's, it's a lifelong exercise of personal development is what I think people don't understand and um you just need to pick one and stick with it and and just do it yeah, that's such a great point and I'm sure you see the same thing as a coach I see people that will program jump right? Even mm -hmm. amongst those of us that have private programs, you know, people will get on a consultation with me and they'll be like, oh, I did this program and I did this one and I did the 30 days of this and I did this. So I really appreciate you saying that, like pick something and stick with it. Even when it's uncomfortable, even when it starts to feel boring or monotonous, you still have to continue doing it and working through those impulses, right? Because of course we want to change things up because it gets boring. We are instant gratification, impulsive people, <laughs> you know? Yeah. The, the magic pill that you're looking for is consistency. It's consistency. Yes. That's the most important thing. And you're absolutely right. We, we do, we're, we're very used to instant gratification and we want everything to work now. And I think it's a paradox. The other thing I'm very interested in is paradox. And I think that when we're in it, it doesn't feel like anything's changing. But I say this to my clients mm -hmm. all the time, like, remember, like, our call four months ago, four months is no time at all. 
like things are already different. So when we're in it, we don't feel like we're changing. But when we look back, we realize how far we've, we've come. And, and it's the consistency. So all human beings have to do personal development, everyone. Everyone has to do the mm-hmm. development of oneself. And there are different methods to do that. And when you have a, an addiction problem, you get an urgent call to do the personal development. And, mm-hmm. and this is something that is ongoing. You know, I'm, I've been sober for 23 years as a result of, I don't do this stuff that I do regularly um, because I think I'm going to drink or I'm afraid. I just don't think about alcohol. It just doesn't exist for me. I do it because mm-hmm. I've, I have um, evidence now that when I do this stuff and I work on myself and I reveal myself to myself, that my life just gets better. It gets more expansive. Good things happen. And I'm all about good stuff happening. And, and so I, I just continue. It is continue. I have to continue to get out of my own way. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. I need methods to continue to get out of my own way, reset my thinking, see things differently, shift my perspective. That's what I have to continue to do. And it is, I mean, even decades in, like I don't sit back and look at my alcoholism and go, oh, I've got this. Mm -mm. I understand I've got this only because I remain diligent in doing the things that keep me well. (laughs) You know, if, if I stop doing the things that are working, I will no longer have this under control, you know? And, and, you know, yeah. And I think I've done it at least twice in my sobriety. I have, it's not that I've got this. So it was after the birth of both my children. I, the first time, first time around, I was exhausted. I had a kid that didn't sleep and I stopped doing everything that I had done to maintain my mental and emotional health. And I remember thinking like, you have been warned to not stop doing these things regardless of the circumstances. And I was like, you know, I'm at home with a baby. It's not like I'm doing anything Mm -hmm. like it's fine. And about 10 months of that, everything that my husband did pissed me off. And so the, the, one of the greatest, um, most helpful things that I have is when, when I'm okay with me, I don't have to make you wrong. And Mm. when I start making other people wrong, like the way my husband puts the milk back in the fridge, and the way my neighbor puts out their trash cans. And I can't believe that mum from school who's da 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 da. That is a red flag for me that I'm not okay. So I did that with my first son. And I realized that I I just I just wasn't, I didn't, I felt very uncomfortable in my own skin. I, just the rain cloud had appeared. Mm-hmm. And I knew exactly what I needed to do to get rid of it. And I did that. And within three weeks, I felt so much better. And then mm-hmm. I did it again with my second son. I just stopped. I was overwhelmed with two small kids. I had zero bandwidth to do anything but get through the day with them. And um, uh, my second son, was when, when he was one, we found out he was lead poisoned. And it was a really big thing. And we had to move out of the house we were in. And I felt really guilty and it was probably one of the worst things I've ever been through. And I started fantasizing about self-harm. Mm-hmm. And I, when I, for about three weeks, I was fantasizing about it and planning and where, where, where would I cut myself and all that kind of stuff. And then I realized, oh shit, I'm in trouble. This is, I'm in trouble. And I immediately got a therapist appointment, told my husband, got to some AA meetings, told my sponsor. And again, within a few weeks, I felt much more restored to myself. So 
I didn't drink on either of those occasions and I didn't feel like I was in danger of drinking. I think if that had carried on, my first step would have been some kind of maybe prescription drugs and then, mm-hmm. you know, inevitably whatever. And I'm not against prescription drugs. I just, mm-hmm. I, I, there, there was, I know better ways to manage my mental health and I wasn't doing that. So, um, yeah, I just, I drift away from myself. Is the only way, that's the only way I can describe it. I drift away from myself. Yeah. It is so true that if I catch myself, exactly what you're saying, right? My external condition, how I'm treating people, how I'm reacting in the world, all of that angst and discomfort and judgment, all of those things when that stuff is happening, it is because of how I'm feeling internally, right? Mm. We just like to blame mm-hmm. all the other things. But mm-hmm. really, when I catch myself being irritable, short-tempered, really negative, or I'll catch myself in jealousy, right? Like I'll see people being successful in their careers and I'll want mine to be farther along and I'll have some of that envy and jealousy. When I catch myself in those negative emotions of any sort, it's not because of the other people, places, and things. It's because I'm not in a good space internally with myself and my life. And that's where exactly what you're saying. You have to get focused on, okay, what's really going on inside of me and what, where am I slacking, right? Because it's yeah. always that something is slipping away. And yeah. unlike you, I don't necessarily think about drinking. I was so grateful to be done with alcohol and never wanted to go back, right? But my old behaviors, my anxiety, my discomfort, my judginess, condescension, all my narcissistic tendencies, right? All of those behaviors will start creeping back in if I'm not taking care of myself. And in that, as you say, that consistent journey of personal development. A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and that's why this isn't like you go and do some 30 day challenge thing and you're fixed and off you go. This alcohol is stopping drinking is 10% of the deal. Emotional mm-hmm. sobriety is 90% of the deal. And again, that, the emotional sobriety is personal development work. It's understanding mm-hmm. why we are the way we are and how our childhood shaped us and understanding our thought patterns and behavior fat patterns and and changing all of that. And that takes some time. And, you know, people will be like, oh, that's so much work. It's like, well, mm, it, it takes effort. Having an alcohol problem takes work. Have you had an alcohol? Have you ever been to work hungover or no sleep? That's that's hard work. Getting sober requires yeah. effort. And, it, and, and it's effort that is richly rewarded. Mm-hmm. But everything we do requires effort. You know, mm-hmm. that's another yeah. thing that kind of throws me off when people can feel so many negative things around getting sober, like, oh, it's going to be so hard and I'm going to have to sacrifice this and sacrifice that. But it's like, well, listen, you do the same thing for work. You do the same thing for sure with kids. Like you don't even claim your life anymore once you have children. Like mm. your, your entire being and every piece of your energy belongs to your children. And same thing with relationships. Like that's a lot of very hard work. So like really it's everything in yeah. life. If you want it to feel good, be successful, anything requires effort and some sacrifice and some discomfort, but we're willing to do it in a lot of areas. We just get all freaked out about it in sobriety. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
So how has your motivation changed as a person with long-term sobriety? Because obviously we get sober, our motivation is pretty high, right? For most people, something has happened, whether that is something really big and dramatic or something on a smaller scale, but there is something typically that makes you go, okay, I have to change like this. I can't continue like this. So that's your motivation in the beginning, right? We're showing up because we need to feel better. We need to get some relief. We need to find a different way to live. We need support and accountability and get some relief. How has your motivation evolved over time? Yes. So I would, uh, my motivation was for for peace to stop Mm -hmm. the panic attacks and anxiety. And then I got qualified as a psychotherapist and was working doing that. And I was about three years sober and I hit an an emotional rock bottom. And I was completely incapable of having um, a functional romantic relationship. I was a train wreck. I was needy. I was insecure. And I already understood, you know, I had the training. I understood about attachment and abandonment and all of that kind of stuff. But I couldn't stop it happening. And I had a relationship and the same pattern that always happens, happened. And um, I was abandoned and I was suicidal. And I, again, I didn't want to drink. I was making a conscious decision to not kill myself today. And I remember thinking, I don't, I can't go through the rest of my life with this level of pain. Like I have no anesthetic. I'm not going to pick up, but I can't, I can't put myself in this situation where I go through this level of pain. And that gave me the gift of desperation. Again, I'd have done anything. I mean, I, I was, I, I thought maybe I'm just going to have to accept that I can't have a relationship and just that's how it is and whatever. And I didn't want to accept that because I did want to get married and have a family. And, um, so I, I got the gift of desperation again and I went and did some really hard work on myself around, um, my patterns in relationships, childhood stuff, all of that kind of stuff. And it, it was really, um, It was multiple things, but it was a process of revealing myself to myself and seeing all of the limiting beliefs that I had were creating the experience that I was having. And I did this work. And then about six months later, I had a crush on a guy that I used to work with. And uh, after a few few weeks, I realized he didn't feel the same way and didn't see me as a potential romantic partner. And I was walking down the street. And I realized that it wasn't going to happen. I think I was more trying to engineer it because he was sober. I was sober. He was a therapist. I was a therapist. And we were about the same age. And um, I had this, my next thought was, um, I wonder what's wrong with him. And I realized, it was like being struck by lightning because I realized that um, everything had changed. That I just didn't feel that there was something wrong with me. I just was like, well, I wonder what's wrong with him that he can't see me in that way. And that spread out everywhere in my life. Like I would walk into the office on a Monday and I'd be like, hi, Angela, how are you? How was your weekend? And if you were like, yeah, it was fine. I would think, oh, what, what have I done to upset Angela? What did, like, what happened? Was it that, was it that email I sent last week? Oh my God. And I would spend all day obsessing that you didn't like me and trying to get you to like me again. Now... I walk into the office and I'd be like, hi, Angela, how was your weekend? If you were like, yeah, it was fine. I'd be like, I wonder what's up with Angela. 
and then I'd go about my day. And that sounds like a small thing, but it was massive. Massive. It was massive. The freedom, the freedom from the bondage of self, freedom from the good and bad opinion of other people. And that's when my life really began to expand in ways I just began to see everything differently. Sobriety is just a shift in perception. That's all mm-hmm. it is. It's, it, you know, my mother hasn't changed. The world hasn't changed. Right. People still drink here, there and everywhere. None of that's changed. But my perception of everything has shifted. And, and once that happens, it's, it's like um, once you have experienced that, you never want to go back. Mm. I like I like my I the contrast between how less my life was like why would I go back that and all I have to do you know I just I joyously maintain that condition by the few minutes of work that I do on most days you know that's and and it's been that way ever since you know I had those the times when I I was talking about with my kids and I've never done anything perfectly. I've done everything messily, but I know exactly what I need to do to be okay. And and that's what I've done for over two decades now. I think so many people can really relate to that. The Not only the perspective shift, but even in what you just described and how it happened for you, right? Through that experience of having those romantic feelings, um, I certainly can relate to that. I had a situation, I call it my relationship rock bottom. I was four years sober and just having this light bulb moment of realizing at four years sober, I was literally dating one of the worst people I had ever picked. <laughs> and I really, I'm like, and I, I had started to understand that I had continued to pick people out of my dysfunction, right? Because again, like everything we are talking about right now is you remove the alcohol. My behaviors are still the same and still until I work on changing those behaviors. So just Mm -hmm. because I had put down the drink four years prior to that Mm -hmm. didn't mean all of my dating habits changed magically overnight, right? Like I was still picking guys based on the same criteria I did when I was drunk. Absolutely. And it it was just this light bulb moment like, oh, wow, well, that's probably a problem. You know, like that's not going to work out. So I had to start paying attention to that. What are some of the other things that you've worked on long-term that you wouldn't have been able to work on? Because I've had a million of those rock bottom moments, right? Like I had the relationship rock bottom. I had financial rock bottom where then I had to really start paying attention to my struggles with money and limiting beliefs around money. And I had to really dedicate a lot of energy into figuring that out. Would you, have you had similar experiences where in different areas of your life, you've had moments where you've realized you had to do some work? Nothing compared to that, but I would say there's lots of layers of the onion that come off. Like I I was 10 years sober when I had my first child and that opens up a whole area Mm -hmm. of work. It's not about the raising of the child. It's about the raising of the parent. And when you have children, it just opens up all the stuff, unresolved stuff from your own childhood. So there is always an invitation to grow. So what what I'd say to people, it's much more steady now. I feel that in early sobriety, it's a bit of a roller coaster. The invitations to grow and the realizations and the life lessons you have, it does feel quite rocky. I feel like it evens out 
a lot more the longer you are. But there are always invitations to grow. And it's, what are they? They're called AFCOs, another fucking growth opportunity. <laughs> like, it's like, oh, another fucking growth opportunity. Um, so <laughs> those things happen. And it's kind of like, I'll notice my resistance to be like, oh, I can't. But that that's the gift, really, that we get given is when you get sober, you get your bandwidth back. And you get the opportunity to grow and life is going to call you to grow and growth is never comfortable. Yeah. And I love that. Afgo. That's so good. Another fucking growth opportunity. <laughs> and and so the difference is before I, I used to think in my drinking and in my early sobriety, I used to think I was moving forward, but I was just in a holding pattern. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't going anywhere. I, I was, movement was happening but it was just in a holding pattern I wasn't going anywhere mm-hmm. so now I'm able to when these opportunities present themselves I'm I'm able to grow through them it's not always elegant or pretty but I'm able to grow through them and that I mean it's just it's like night and day like my life is so expansive I, I I'm going to tell you the longer I get I'm sober the more grateful I am like my gratitude just increases and it, I, I, I am so aware now that I'm 50, I'm aware that like what a gift I gave myself to not drink for 23 years in terms of aging and health. And I kind of, I was seeing some people around the pool the other day where I lived There's a pool and, um, and they were drinking and you know, whatever. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm so glad that I no longer believe I need to add alcohol to things to make them better. Like, I'm so glad that I could hang out with my friends at the pool and not drink, and that I can go dancing and not drink, that I can go for dinner and not drink, that I can do all everything sober, and it's better because I'm sober, that I'm not trapped in that belief system that adding alcohol to something makes it better. Like, I'm so grateful my perception has shifted on that. So my, my gratitude just continues to, to grow. Like I, I'm just, and I, I'm, one thing I'm very clear about is I'm very, very, very clear that everything I have in my life, my family, my husband, my two kids, my really good mental health is because of stopping drinking and the work that I did. None of it was luck and none of it was by accident. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I. I always say that being an alcoholic is the best thing that ever happened to me for exactly that reason, right? Because otherwise, like being an alcoholic just forced me to pay attention and get myself together, right? It put enough risk in, in the equation that I had to really pay attention and be committed and take this thing seriously, take my life seriously. I had to take becoming a good person seriously to be dedicated to it. Otherwise, I would have been a part of the herd, right, that never does anything, that that feels like crap. My health would have been terrible. I would have been angry and bitter and resentful at the world for a million reasons, I'm sure, and feeling sorry for myself and playing the victim and not doing anything to change my circumstances, right? But like blaming the world for everything and not taking any action. It's that sobriety piece that that put me in the place to really do it and get it together where I get to be who I am today which is its own miracle. 
And and that's a really good example of a shift in perception, right? If someone had told you three years before you stopped drinking that actually you're an alcoholic and you need to go get sober and go to 12-step meetings, my perception of that would have been that's literally the worst news I've ever heard in my life. Like that's the worst thing ever, right? That right, that's just perception. And I think most people would feel like that. Now I'm this side of it my perception of actually I was just I was just a really common garden alcoholic and I need to go to some meetings and I needed to grow and develop was actually the best thing that's ever happened to me all that is is a shift in perception right right how do you handle challenging situations now like we touched on not necessarily having a desire to drink when you're challenged or triggered right for me it's always behavioral and And I'm also the same that if I start seeing old behaviors creeping back in, like my home group is the first spot I'm going to, you know, like I need a little time out. I need a reprieve. I need to get my head together. I need some love and support and kindness. Um, But it isn't about drinking necessarily. So what, how do you handle challenging situations where maybe you do start to see yourself slipping back into some old behaviors? So the one thing that I've done consistently that's never, ever, ever failed me, and every time my back has been against the wall, is 10th step inventory. The, the inventory process of revealing yourself to yourself through a structured way, that fixes it every time. Now, it doesn't, always fix it in the moment sometimes I need to continue to do I need to just continue to have the discipline of getting out of my own way and revealing myself to myself and I need to continue to do that and when I do that eventually the perception shifts and I feel differently so that and it's not I don't go to that when I'm in trouble I consistently do that to stay out of trouble and when I am in trouble that it, you know, it's already there in place. So it's not, I think that's really important because I feel like a lot of people think that they just off they go. And then when things get tough, they intensively do something, they feel better. And then they stop doing the stuff that made them feel better. Um, so it's the, it's the inventory process in the way that it's structured to just get me out of my own way. Cause I just, it's the perception thing that I can't see it now. Um, from time to time, I need to share that with someone uh, because I can't see it for myself and I need some feedback from someone on what is actually going on here. But I, for that, that has that is just what's worked for me. And sometimes it's revealed that, you know what, you need to go get some therapy and deal with that. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's revealed that you need to have better boundaries with that person or whatever. It, it reveals often an action that then needs to be taken but I can't get to that action without that process first, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Will you, for the listeners, especially the people that aren't 12-step, will you give a brief outline of what the 10th step inventory process is? Yeah, so there's, um, it's about dealing with resentments. So resentments are basically when they rent space in our heads And it's when we feel there's been an injustice or we have been put upon or taken advantage of, or it's not fair. And that rents space in our heads and it burns us. And we go over and over and over. It's the stuff that you go over and over in your mind, right? Basically, it's that. The stuff that just plays over and over and over in your mind. 
And it, it just festers there. It's not good. It's not good to have that fester in your mind. So there's two great methods that I know of to be able to deal with that because I just want that. I, I don't want that in my mind. Um, it's the 10th step inventory. And there's also a process that I use with my clients. It's based on rational motive behavioral therapy. But the 10th step inventory is about writing out whatever we think it is. So I'm resentful at X because they did this, this, and this. How does that affect me? And then uh, we look at um, uh, how we have caused harm in that situa situation. And what is revealed is what has our mistake been? And often, I'll tell you, it's often um, I made assumptions. Like I made assumptions. I wanted that person to guess what I needed. And I'm resentful that they didn't give me what I needed when I actually didn't tell them. I want them to guess. So often that I make assumptions, it's often that I want other people to be the way I want them to be. Here's what comes up a lot. We Often we have people, we all of us have toxic people in our lives, right? Usually family members. And we often have people who have very dysfunctional, unwell behavior that we have to deal with. We just do for whatever reason. And we get resentful at them for being toxic and unwell. And here's the thing. It's often like, well, how long have you known this person? You've known them 20 years. You've known them your whole life. Why did you think today they would come along and be like a rational, reasonable person? Like, you you know how they're behaving. And you're angry at them for behaving how they've always behaved. So that had a massive impact on me, like with my mother, who has lots of various issues, including being autistic, is eventually over time, I began to see that I, I was creating, I was generating and creating the distress and the upset because I, I, I was expecting her to be different all the time. I was expecting her to be the way I, that would be preferable, it would be preferable to me and everyone on the planet if you all behaved in the way that I wanted, right? I'll just send a memo out every morning and the whole world can just get on my program and do things the way I think they should be done. Yeah, right? send everybody the rule book so they can start yeah. behaving. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And, you know, even when beha people behave really badly and do really hurtful things, you know what? We have done that. You know, yeah. have you not in your life ever yelled at an airline member or, a, you know, or someone who parked in your parking space, right? Have you not behaved, regretted something that's come out of your mouth or behavior because you felt it's not fair, whatever? So it, I... I I've just found that to, it, 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 I, I think that's the core of everything. I think everything, it, if everybody could find a better way to deal with their resentments, I think that the world would definitely be a much better place, but I can only do it for me. So it's about dealing with the resentments and what rent space in your head. So I had, this happened actually just two or three weeks ago. Um, I had a resentment, there was a situation and we were out for dinner with this person and he behaved in a way that really upset me and I was fuming fuming like steam was coming out of my ears and I knew and it, it it was going over and over in my mind and I knew that if I didn't take action it would just fester and ruin my weekend so I wrote it out immediately and I took action and the action was I sent a text message saying you're you're not welcome in my world if you speak to me like that and it brought it down by like 85 percent it was like I've seen, I've written it out. This is a very unwell person that I need to have very strong boundaries with. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to let them know what those very strong boundaries are. I still reflected on it for a few days, 
But it was a completely different if I hadn't have taken that action in that moment to just, I need this out of my head. I need to deal with this appropriately so I can have peace. Otherwise, that person would have lived rent-free in my head for several days. Mm-hmm. They're probably having a wonderful weekend, whereas I'm the one with steam still coming out my ears being pissed off. So that was a recent one that, and, and that doesn't happen very often to me now because I have so much practice at, at this, but it still happens and I have a tool and I know what to do. Yeah. What advice would you give someone who is just starting their journey in sobriety and recovery what would you tell them to do from, you know, in their first months? Um, you have to make this your main thing. You have to make sobriety your main thing. I mean, you have to, you know, do the laundry and go to work and all that kind of stuff. But you have to make the development of yourself the main thing. So you have to stop drinking. And then you need to have a program and a process that enables you to deal with the stuff that's under the hood. And and that's something that takes time. And it's not it's to stop drinking, but really that's what gets you in. After that, it's because you know what? We all have baggage and stuff that we would all benefit from hugely if we uh, looked at it a bit and, and you know, every, everybody would benefit from having their limiting beliefs challenged and their um, mindset shifted and some understanding of their childhoods and some healing of their trauma and wounds and all of that kind of stuff. And if you embark on that journey, and consistently do the work, the rewards are beyond anything you could imagine. Any, I mean, I swear to God, if you'd have told me this was my life, when I stopped drinking, I just wanted to not have anxiety and panic attacks, a little flat somewhere, a job, a car. That would that would have done me. I'd have been happy with that. I got all those things. Mm-hmm. And, and then I got way more as well. So um, what you, with your best thinking imagining what could be possible for you in sobriety would be selling yourself short. It's so true. And that's hard to understand when you're sitting at the beginning, right? Because you can't even, and this is so important, you can't even think big enough yet to understand what the possibilities are. And like so much of what I do today didn't even exist when I got Mm -hmm. sober. Podcasts Mm -hmm. weren't a thing when I got sober. You know what I mean? Private coaching programs weren't a really big thing when I got sober. So like my whole life, so many pieces of my life, there's no way I could have imagined but that's the dedication of really letting it unfold in front of you and being open, but continuing to show up and do the work on yourself to give those opportunities the space to show up. Because if you're not doing the work on yourself and getting better, then bigger opportunities can't come to you. 100%. Yeah. Okay. What is your, I feel like you've kind of already answered this, but what is your favorite thing about being a sober person? Well, I, I'm going to tell you, I came from such a dysfunctional, like I was, my mom was a single parent with mental health issues. My best achievement is my family, that I have a a really good relationship with my husband and that I have two kids that are doing really well and love to spend time with us. Like that is the best. And I only have that because of my sobriety and, and how I've worked on myself. So the best thing is that, Like for me, I used to look at people when I was in my 20s who just, you know, were married with a family. There was such envy and awe. And it was unfathomable to me 
how that happened because I couldn't date anyone beyond six weeks. So to have achieved that and to have that, that that's the best thing about my sobriety and, and, and the peace in my mind. For sure. Veronica, take a minute and tell everybody the best place to find you. Yeah, my website is soberful.com. Um, I'm on Instagram as Veronica J Valley. If you put Veronica Valley in, I think I come in all over the place. Uh, there's the Soberful book co- podcast, and then I have a book on Amazon. If you put Veronica Valley in, it's called Soberful. And I will link that in the show notes for everybody too, so you can get there right from your podcast app. Thank you so much for having this amazing conversation with me. It's lovely to be here. You've reached the end of another great episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast, candid and honest conversation about addiction and recovery. Be sure to visit us at addictionunlimited.com to join the conversation and access show notes and links to everything we talked about. Love this episode? Please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes to help us improve and give you the information you want. Thanks for listening. See you next week.